Welcome to the fourth episode of Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I am also the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast. I have with me my co-host, Dr. Robert Pearl. Robert is the former CEO of the Permanente Group, the largest physician group in the United States, responsible for caring for Kaiser Permanente members on both the East and West Coast. He is a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast aimed at addressing the failures of the current American healthcare system and finding solutions to make it once again the best in the world. We're very excited you have chosen to join us in this quest. For 40 years, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system. No one has succeeded yet. We need a hero. Our guests are the top leaders and thinkers in healthcare. The show's format is simple. Our guests will have 10 minutes to present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And I will probe deeply based on my experience as a physician and healthcare CEO. I'll scrutinize the plan, posing questions that challenge our guests and helping our listeners separate real solutions from hype. And Jeremy will dive in from the patient's perspective ensuring their concerns are addressed, making certain the concepts are clear for listeners, and helping to translate any medical jargon you may have used into normal conversational language. Unlike many other healthcare shows, we are not interested in hearing about a pilot project that worked in one location or a new device that a company simply wants to promote. We're searching for truly disruptive change, not just a few minor tweaks. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Topol. He is the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, professor of molecular medicine, and executive vice president of Scripps Research. As a researcher, he has published over 1,200 peer-reviewed articles with more than 200,000 citations. He was elected to the National Academy of Medicine and is one of the top 10 most cited researchers in medicine. His principal scientific focus has been on genomic and digital tools to individualize medicine and the power that brings to individuals to drive the future of medicine. He has published two best-selling books on the future of medicine, The Creative Destruction of Medicine, and The Patient Will See You Now. His new book, Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again, will be published in early 2019. Dr. Topol is recognized as one of the most innovative and forward-thinking minds in healthcare. Dr. Topol, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much, Jeremy. Glad to be with you and Robert. Eric, consider yourself an applicant for the job of leader of American healthcare. You're being hired due to your experience and reputation as a visionary and innovator. Being hired because after decades of talking about the unaffordability of healthcare coverage and nearly 20 years of lamenting lagging quality and over 100,000 deaths nationally each year from preventable medical error, our country is ready to make a major change. As I told the audience, we're not interested in small incremental fixes. We're simply trade-offs among costs quality, and service. Instead, believe that disruption is possible, and you, Eric, are the right person to make it happen. The deliverables are significant in size and scope. Unless we can achieve this level of improvement, we don't believe that over the next five to ten years, the American people will be willing to move forward. We'd like you to provide a plan to achieve the following. Number one, increase life expectancy in the U.S. from last among the 11 most industrialized nations to at least the middle of the pack. Two, 
increased quality outcomes, as publicly reported by organizations like the NCQA, the National Quality Assurance Committee, by at least 20%. Three, decreased costs by 20% on federally reported data. Four, improved service and convenience by 20%, patient-reported satisfaction. Five, improved professional satisfaction for clinicians by 20% on physician surveys. Dr. Topol, you will have 10 minutes to outline the system of healthcare you believe is capable of accomplishing all of these outcomes and the steps you will take in this role to get there. We can't wait to hear your plan. Please begin. Okay, Robert. Well, this is, uh, of course, uh, a challenge to come up with a plan that will address all your uh, goals, but I do believe it's eminently doable. First, we have to confront that there are two big parts of the story. One, that the life expectancy in the United States being so poor relative to all the other developed countries, and it's not just life expectancy, now will be three years going down, which is unprecedented, along with maternal mortality, childhood mortality, infant mortality, every metric is really a pathetic showing in the U.S. Now, part of that is due to the lack of access because of people of low socioeconomic income, because the United States is the only country that does not provide health care to all of its citizens. And that needs to be fixed. We can't address the reduction in these critical metrics unless we provide health care equitably among all U.S. citizens. So step number one. But along with that, the I believe that another side of this is the fact that we do so much for so many people that are that is unnecessary, the waste. Uh, there are many papers to substantiate that at least a third of the $3.6 trillion a year in the U.S. that is spent is wasteful, unnecessary, and harmful. That has to stop. So on the one end, we're talking about the people who can't afford health care that are getting unnecessary procedures and testing and treatments. And on the other, we're talking about people who can't even get to this. So it's really the two poles that have to be addressed systematically. Now, as far as how are we going to get the brakes on all the unnecessary things, a part of that is due uh, to the lack of a data-driven system. Uh, we have uh, increasingly uh, the problem of data flooding and the lack of time that doctors have to look at not only the data, but to interact with patients, which is the most important part of all. The reason why clinicians went into medicine was because they wanted to care for their fellow human beings. And the reason why today we have a burnout rate in excess of 50% in this country, along with uh, the most extraordinary levels of depression, clinical depression and suicide that has ever been seen is because doctors can't take care of patients because they're squeezed so much by administrators. We have far too many administrators who are making far too much requests of productivity among clinicians. And so the result of that has been that there's not just disenchantment, but we know that the doctor who suffers from burnout has twice as much rate of medical errors. 
we know there are more than 12 million serious medical errors in the United States every year. And that number is not going down, but rather is increasing as the rate of burnout increases. So we need to make a life better for clinicians and for patients. And the way we can do that uh, as far as handling this data and giving the gift of time, which is so essential, seven minutes for an appointment in a clinic is grossly inadequate. And that's for a return visit, 12 minutes on average for a patient and doctor to consult for a new patient is ridiculous. So the gift of time can be achieved by using analytics, that is uh, deep learning, artificial intelligence, taking data that's from not just the electronic record, from sensors, from genomics, from all different sources, and being able to process that data and put a investment in making life better. We've already seen how that can help radiologists, pathologists, dermatologists, uh, gastroenterologists, and across the board, every single type of clinician will be affected by this. It can make medicine more efficient, improve the workflow, and give the gift of time uh, to both clinicians and patients. So that's something to work on the promiscuous use, the unnecessary aspects of medicine that are well over a trillion dollars a year. The other big thing that we need to work on, because that will handle the human capital problem we have today, which is we keep throwing more labor, human resources, at our problem in the United States, and it's just getting worse. That is, last December, for the first time ever, the employment in the healthcare sector exceeded retail, and it's a runaway train. And by just putting in more human resources to the problem, that's not the answer. The answer is to use machine algorithms and reduce the need for labor. But most importantly, is to address the hospital. The hospital is the number one line item if one looks at facilities. And, of course, labor, human resources, is the number one of all. But if we work on these two ends, we can cut costs. Now, how can we reduce hospital costs? because that's $1.2 trillion a year and rising quickly. The way we can do that is to get rid of hospital rooms. We're not talking about getting rid of the emergency room or the operating room or the intensive care unit or fancy imaging equipment, but the rest of the hospital should be gutted and these people should be at home to avoid the one in four chance of a serious harm or error that takes place in the hospital, nosocomial infections, and the ridiculous cost of a hospital stay in the United States, which is approaching on average $5,000 a day. So we have exquisite remote monitoring capabilities now, and we should be using that. We should be developing that. And just like decades ago, when we saw the big shift from inpatient to outpatient, we need to have the shift from inpatient. This is not the critical care people, but the, the subacute, the, the people in regular hospital rooms, from inpatient to home. So I believe that through having uh, health care for all uh, and addressing the big items that are currently neglected, that is dealing with the hospital of the future, avoiding continued unrelentless investments in human capital, which is taking us nowhere, and our metrics keep getting worse, and starting to put the brakes on and stopping all the unnecessary, wasteful, and harmful care.
Very exciting, Eric. Let me start by raising a very straightforward but complex question, which is you point out, as others have, as I have, that one-third of what we do as physicians is waste. Physicians are smart. They're scientists. Why do they continue to do things that add no value? Well, that's because in the United States, relative to other countries, um, there's incentives to do things that are unnecessary. And whether that's done at a conscious level or more likely it's done at a subconscious level, it's like the man with a hammer has the tools that need for nails that need pounding. You know, this is our problem in this country. We have, we're set up to fail. Uh, ideally, a different way to handle this would be all physicians would get salary, uh, you know, a, a reasonable compensation, and there would be no incentives for this type of effort that's unnecessary. But short of that, there are, as you know, Robert, there's uh, hundreds of these choosing wisely guidelines that have been put out reluctantly by all the professional societies about all the unnecessary things that are done today that should stop. And none of them have ever been enacted, even though the professional societies have volunteered them. We could start today by saying all those things that have been volunteered as unnecessary, we're not going to do those anymore. This is the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation that put this together under the pressure through all these professional societies, but all it did lead to nice publications, but no action. Well, the choosing wisely, if you look at the orthopedic one that was created, the most commonly done operation, as you know, is arthroscopy with cartilage trimming, which has been shown first in Canada and now in JAMA to have no value. And yet the most commonly done operation didn't even make their list. So we're not even talking about individual physicians. We're talking about the national specialty societies. And as you know, as a cardiologist, the same thing's true very much for some of the stenting procedures in patients with very stable coronary symptoms. Uh, any thoughts yes. about Well, I I view the professional societies as trade guilds. Basically, their role, as they've shown, is largely to preserve the reimbursement uh, of their constituents. They're not interested in fixing these problems. They, they, They don't have any role, and that goes not just for the AMA, but across the board, in dealing with the waste and the unnecessary um procedures and testing and treatments and on and on. So that's a problem is we can't rely on professional societies to lead the way because they've shown us uh, for decades that they are not part of the solution. Let's move on to something that you're an expert in, but I think is really a, a crucial question for us to address, which is the electronic health record. We know that they slow doctors down. We know that they frustrate physicians. We know that they are created around billing, not patient care. And yet we seem to have very little progress towards moving towards a 21st century type of tablet or other type of device. I couldn't agree with you more about that. This is uh, one of the most absurd aspects of medical care in this country that our electronic health records are proprietary systems by the likes of Epic and Cerner and Oscars and, and many other companies that have a, a lesser uh, proportion of uh, use in the market. Uh, these uh, systems, as you said, are set up for billing. 
and they're also business to business, that is to sell the hospital systems, they have no real interest in the patient. This, this is the problem is that electronic health records, which no one in this country has all their data from you know, being in the womb through the present time. Uh, and they all should. They should be their data. They should own their data. And uh, it's just the opposite of the way we're set up here. So uh, that has to change. The companies that are basically controlling this without any government uh, oversight and regulation to demand standards, to demand seamless interoperability, that's not working. And we have thrown tens of billions of dollars to this to get nothing out of it. And so my solution there is that we forget the whole idea of the current model, that we need to reboot, that every individual should have their medical data, all their medical data, because they obviously go to many different providers, and they need to have all that data in the new world of artificial intelligence to eventually uh, lead them to coach them for various medical conditions. When no one has that data, it's essential because it's homeless today. And that's what, what I mean is it's sensor data and increasingly people are going to have generate their own data and it has nowhere to go. That could be uh, heart rhythm, it could be blood pressure, it's continuous, it could be glucose, and on and on. Sensor data, no place for it to go. Then you have genomic data, which is just the beginning of the biologic layers of data, but now people have either DNA high-throughput genotyping or they'll have genome sequencing, they'll have their gut microbiome, and many other layers of biologic data. It has no place to go. It's certainly not going to go in the electronic medical record of a health system. So we need a model that incorporates all these different sources of data for each person from in the womb to the present time that's seamlessly updated, not requiring any person's active work to bring in the data. And it has all the raw scans to avoid the 10% of people in the United States have unnecessary duplication of medical images and lab tests because they can't get to the data that's sitting in some electronic health record somewhere. So this is another source of billions of dollars of waste. And moreover, it's a violation of a civil right, I believe. Everyone should own their data. This is inevitable. It's a matter of when it's going to occur. We've already seen it take place in other countries around the world, even places like Estonia, where each person owns their data, sits on a blockchain format, all their data seamlessly updated. It can be done but no one is taking the initiative in the United States. To get that data, the large manufacturers are going to have to open up their APIs, the application processing interfaces. You, you, you talk about this as being a human right, a citizen's right. Will Congress act on it? Well, they should. Uh, you know, I, I don't believe that uh, Epic and Cerner and the rest of these companies uh, have a place in, in the modern electronic medical world that we live in. And unless they are forced to all play ball, and uh, we see no evidence that there's going to be any government teeth to bring this to light, then we need to uh, come up with a new solution. But they're a big part of the problem. Uh, and I just mentioned the, all the unnecessary testing just because doctors can't get to the data. Patients can't get their data. 
you know, the recent report of how from the Yale group of how the difficulties, even though there are laws for people to be able to access their medical data, there's all sorts of information blocking that's pervasive and that can't be tolerated. When patients own their own healthcare data, what does that, from their perspective, what does that look like and how does that work? Well, it's total control. I mean, first of all, all your data is shareable, searchable. Any portion thereof can be given to a doctor or part of a research study. So you basically are truly controlling it. Uh, some of it will be co-owned because the doctor that you have a relationship with, you'd want that doctor to have at least the relevant part of your record. But the point being is nothing like today where you have to beg and grovel to get pieces of your data. Uh, and when you own your data and any medical interaction you have, whether it's a sensor you're wearing, whether it's a genomic test you just had done, it goes in seamlessly. That's what's essential, that it doesn't require work and that all that data is there and it can be uh, analyzed. So it's exciting. It's inevitable. It's the ultimate democratization of medicine, in my view. Uh, it will happen. Uh, despite the uh, intense efforts to suppress the consumer, the patient, and the persistence of medical paternalism, that will end someday in the future. So where would that data live? Would it be on the patient's smartphone in a cloud where they would always have access to that? Or kind of where would that information be housed? Well, there's lots of models uh, that have been touted. These digital wallets that could be a blockchain, could be in the private cloud of that family or that individual. You know, you have to think about children and uh, how their data will be housed. But whether it's a, a private cloud of blockchain, and it obviously has to be accessible through smartphones and through the web, that that's not the big question. It's the willingness to go there. Uh, there's no there's no shortage of technical solutions, but we don't have a mandate from government. We don't have the uh, all-out efforts and demand from the public yet to make this happen. What about the privacy and safety concerns of the patients then owning their own health data? Well, that's the solution to privacy and security. What we have today is we leak medical data like a sieve. We have over 100 million Americans who had their data hacked, medical data hacked and stolen. We have hospitals and health systems that are being held hostage, ransom. Uh, it's amazing. And nothing's being done about it. And if you talk to any cybersecurity guru, the first biggest goal is to get data in lowest numbers of units, like one or two. And that then eliminates the target capability. I mean, right now, the cyber thievers and hackers are attracted because medical data is the most valuable form of data, fivefold to tenfold more valuable on the dark web than personal financial credit data. So the whole idea is to get it off these massive servers where it exists today and the likes of these major breaches of tens of millions of people that we've seen but get it down to the individual, that they own the data and they share parts of it and they no longer become uh, the target for cyber fever. Eric, you're, you're an expert in artificial intelligence. Your book's coming out early next year. Uh, I tend to think of this as being in two categories. There's the pattern recognition 
AI, the radiology, the pathology, the dermatology, and then obviously there's the AI related to the electronic health record. But focusing only first on the part that is um, patent recognition, uh, to the best of my knowledge, and you're the most knowledgeable person I know in the United States, but to the best of my knowledge, the machines are now about 10% better than physicians. Why do we still use physicians to do these tasks? Well, yeah, I don't look at the data that way uh, at this point. I look at it as the combination. There are some papers that claim that the machines, algorithms outperform doctors, but if you look at these papers carefully, almost all are retrospective. There's only a handful that are prospective studies in a real clinical environment. And the ones that are in the real clinical environment don't suggest that there's superhuman performance, but there's tremendous opportunities for synergy. So as far as pattern recognition, what I think there is you see a tremendous opportunity to improve workflow so that accuracy, reducing expense. So deep learning algorithms and whether that's applied to medical images or skin lesions for dermatologists, path slides, detecting polyps at the time of colonoscopy across every type of clinician, uh, echocardiogram readings, electrocardiograms, you name it. It has the, the ability of combining not just the algorithm that always will require human oversight in my view, but the, the remarkable improvement in accuracy because machines can see things humans can't. Uh, humans get distracted, they get tired, and they also don't have the magnification uh, potential, the ability to simulate the data. So they, they're complementary. But I don't ever see the point where humans, doctors, clinicians are not required because often we're talking about critical decisions. And so I, I just don't see that the pattern recognition is great. It's sped up. It's far more accurate. But someone has to sign off on that before a patient is treated or misdiagnosed. I still believe that's where a doctor is going to come into play. Now, that might not be for minor routine things. Like, you know, if there's a diagnosis uh, that's highly accurate of an ear infection or a skin rash, perhaps, perhaps. But for anything that's any more serious than that, uh, it's really going to require oversight. There's a lot of literature on algorithms from a variety of fields, everything from length of sentencing in the courts all the way through medical care delivery. There's a lot of data, again, to my reading, that says that algorithms will outperform individual physician intuition, which is slash variation. And yet, so far, at least most physicians are not happy about following algorithms as though they have the database and success rates that they have been demonstrated to accomplish. What are your thoughts about the use of algorithms, the way Siri could help physicians? particularly in doing the more mundane or common and routine uh, approaches? And what do you see to be the next level, particularly as it relates to AI? Yeah, well, I, I, you're bringing up a, a really important point. Uh, the Siri is a weak hitter for uh, voice recognition for natural language processing. But, uh, you know, we now have seen not just uh, Alexa and other uh, smart speakers, but this whole area is set up with now 20 different companies that are working on using voice during a medical visit to synthesize a note that's far better than the notes that are in current electronic records without any input except 
review by both the patient and the doctor or nurse. So there we'll see in the years ahead getting rid of keyboards. That's a big advance. That's because now there is the, the clear capability of speech recognition to be so accurate. And of course, for each doctor, it just gets better and better. It's autodidactic. So with the patient review of their note, which they should be doing, isn't being done today, but it will be. It'll be part of the normal uh, routine uh, because it's their note that they will own someday. But also, it obviously, it will require sign-off by a physician after that machine learning takes place. So we're going to see, not Siri, but a generation far better than that that takes over the keyboard function. The elimination of the keyboard in the office or on rounds to do in-hospital notes is going to be a big plus to restoring the way medicine should be because that has been one of the singular factors that's detracted greatly from the, the human side of medicine. We turn towards the wearables for a second, and I concur with you that the hospitals of the past will be dinosaurs in the future. And certainly there's a lot of evidence today that quite a number of medical groups and organizations are able to treat relatively mild pneumonia that we would have hospitalized someone for at home administering antibiotics. But I want to focus on the question of the wearables, uh, at least right now, not the theoretical ones a decade or two from now, but the short term. When I talk to my hospital-based physicians, the ones who take care of the people in the hospital, and I ask them the following question, who is in the hospital tonight that you normally would send home tomorrow? Not that they should have gone home yesterday, uh, but these are ones you expect by tomorrow morning will be fine. Who would you send home tonight if they had extensive wearable devices, O2, uh, blood pressure, pulse, uh, maybe blood glucose? And to a person, what they say to me is almost no one, because we don't keep people in the hospital to monitor them. We take, keep them in the hospital to treat them when the monitor shows there's a problem. How would you respond to these, uh, I'll say, reticent individuals? Yeah, no, actually, I don't really agree with that point. Uh, the reason people are kept in the hospital uh, is because there's some uncertainty about their status. We can treat them at home. Obviously, patients get treated at home all the time now with antibiotics and other types of treatment. That's, the treatment part certainly does not rely on in-hospital presence. But there's enough concern, there's enough worry to keep them in the hospital for observation or for some reason or other. And we haven't invested. A lot of these things we're talking about, Robert and Jeremy, are things that could be developed to prove. And there, there's no exceptionalism here. They, all these things have to be proven by rigorous uh, studies, ideally randomized trials. But if we were to prove to the medical community that all these people in the hospital that are sitting in regular rooms, just sending them home without putting them in the regular room uh, with appropriate monitoring, I think that would dispel the notion that you described. I concur with you that if we were able to do that, we could drop hospital utilization dramatically. When I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we lowered the days per thousand uh, for Medicare patients to half of the national number. The question I'd like to pose to you is we would then need a lot fewer hospitals. How do you see that hospital consolidation and hospital closure progressing given how much resistance we see in every community 
when we talk about closing a local facility? Yeah, I think, you know, we have already been seeing attrition of hospitals in the United States. You know, at one point it was well over 6,000. I think it's now hovering closer to 4,000. I mean, it's really dropping down, but uh, it's only just begun. What we've seen in centers like Mercy Hospital in St. Louis is the transition to a monitoring facility. So all those people that you send out and put on continuous vital sign monitoring uh, with algorithms that detect when before there's a problem that their person is slipping um, and that potential problem is imminent, that has to be housed somewhere. I don't think it would be a national level or outsourced to another country. I, I think the ideal situation is it's in that community because there's continuity with the clinicians that care for the patient. So uh, that would be a, a likely way that the facilities today that exist, a lot of them have just been built and very costly, uh, but they could still be useful uh, because they would be uh, the monitoring resources of the future with minimal personnel required because these stations would you know, very much be data-driven, algorithmic, with relatively limited personnel required. Uh, you talked about in your system of healthcare eliminating a lot of the uh, needless administrative jobs. How do you plan to communicate to the public that you're planning on eliminating that many jobs? Well, uh, you know, I think that's obviously not going to happen overnight. It's a slow story, especially in this country, uh, because our job uh, economy relies on healthcare jobs now more than any other sector. So, you know, there's reluctance to reduce them. Really, the, what can be addressed is the continued growth, this deep curve of growth. If you if you look at the uh, labor statistics from uh, the U.S. Gov site, it's particularly worrisome. It's harrowing because that's how we're hemorrhaging financially. So, you know, I think what we need is this quantum jump in efficiency and productivity that we can glean from. Uh, the world of AI. China is invested heavily in that. I'm working with the NHS uh, in the UK to uh, accelerate that and helping design that. So there are places around the world that are into this. The U.S. is not not in tune with the so far uh, with that potential. Let's shift to another area of your expertise, which is genomics, and we certainly have a, a moderate number of diseases for which the genetics cause the disease. Hemophilia being a really great example of that. But most of the areas that we are following, whether we're looking at the DNA database itself or we're looking at the various combinations uh, leading to uh, possible disease production, often are correlations, not causations. They'll tell you that the risk is higher, but they don't define the risk. Do you see this pattern changing in the future? And if so, when and how? Well, we have a lot of genomics today that we're not using, particularly polygenic risk scores for most common conditions that include, you know, heart disease, breast and prostate cancer, type 2 diabetes. And so these are probabilistic, but if you have hundreds of variants from a low-cost, high-throughput genotyping that costs today less than $50, it could be far less than that even, you, you could go into prevention mode. All these things are actionable, but we're not using them. Part of this problem is we have a lack of comfort uh, among clinicians using genomics. We have 151 drugs today that are FDA approved with genetic labels 
and no testing, essentially none in the U.S. to guide the use of drugs that have these genetic labels. So what we're doing is ignoring a remarkable body of data, which would make medicine less wasteful, less harmful for many, uh, starting to you know get uh, prevention mode going. And it's really unfortunate that uh, this doesn't get traction. You see the same thing, though, in overall general recommendations for the public. We know that hypertension is controlled only 55% of the time across the U.S. We know that very successful things like colon cancer screening have only done uh, 60, 65% of the time. Uh, how do you see the application of genomics being different than the overall population management recommendations? Yeah, well, I think it can make us much smarter. Right now, we treat everyone, you know, like a cattle herd, where everybody should have a mammogram, everyone should have a colonoscopy, everyone should have a PSA. I mean, this is ridiculous. We we know that there's only 12% of women who ever will have breast cancer, and we probably at this point can at least get it down to, you know, 50% of women having mammography ever, uh, and then also with the ones who are at higher risk. That would be the ones who would perhaps would have a, a, a yearly assessment. But instead of everyone having colonoscopies and everyone having um, a PSAs, every man, I mean, this is just crazy stuff. And we are so much more intelligent. We have so much more data now to guide that. We're not using it. And this is all part of that waste that I began with in terms of how we could get rid of the waste and, and not put people through unnecessary testing, which has all sorts of false positives. I mean, if you review the data, you would never allow mammography or PSA testing to be done because the net harm is so much greater than the, than the benefit. So th this has to be rebooted as well if we're going to have an intelligent healthcare system. You and I totally agree on the need to move from fee-for-service to capitation. But even in a capitated system, we need to measure performance of physicians. Physicians don't like to have the dozens to 50 to 80 to 100 different measures of outcomes uh, being in place. How would you recommend that we measure individual physician performance, particularly in the areas of quality and service? Well, the way we do it today is uh, defies any uh, semblance of intelligence. Uh, we use guidelines that are not evidence-based. They're eminence-based. And we ding doctors for the wrong things, like they didn't give someone a statin when in fact they, the patient shouldn't have had a statin. I mean, all kinds of things that are just, you know, really, frankly, ludicrous. And the, the problem we have is that these metrics that have been adopted for, for uh, assessment are often wrong. They don't promote individualized medicine. They don't promote system two thinking, which is just, you know, this is what we're missing here in, in medicine today. So. I don't uh, favor the, their use until they're done properly, and I have seen very few of these uh, metrics that are used today uh, that are useful. Obviously, we have issues of quality among clinicians, and some being outliers, both positive and negative, but we have to come up with better ways to make that assessment if it's going to be meaningful and not have false illusions about uh, what constitutes quality. You and I uh, both see a role for wearable devices. The role that I see is a little bit different than the one you've described. What I see is the possibility of a patient 
having a lot of different measures being done, but then shifting care from being episodic to continuous. And what I mean by that is that a software program embedded inside the confluence of wearables, we tell the patient when they're okay and when they're not. And rather than seeing the patient every three months, four months, six months, whatever it might be, we would see them whenever there's a problem and obviously not have to see them except for a very small occasional amount of time outside of acute problems. This actually happens with implantable defibrillators. And so one of the things that we were able to do is to shift from seeing people with implantable defibrillators every three months to saying, we'll see you as soon as it misfires, or as soon as it fires, maybe tomorrow, or it may not be for nine months from now. When I've talked to the manufacturers of these devices, they're afraid to do it. Because as you know, whatever algorithm you come up with will have a one in a hundred, one in a thousand chance of being wrong. It's just the way any system is constructed. How can we get someone, NIH, your instituted scripts, someone to create the algorithms so that we actually can make American healthcare be continuous in the 21st century and not simply the way it was in the 20th when it was very much acute based and episodic? Right. Well, I'm with you uh, that this has to be done. Uh, this takes purposeful effort. This takes investment of resources and people and uh, transdisciplinary work with uh, app developers and data scientists and uh, AI experts and, and on and on. But the point being is the one-off care and the one-off blood pressure measurement and the one-off everything is, is, is really crazy because it's very misleading. Uh, we don't even know what normal blood pressure is, by the way, because all of our studies were done with uh, a, a doctor's office measurement. What does that mean? So we need to define all this data again, and we need to develop this continuous or high-frequency assessment, real-world management, where a lot of this, the person is coached uh, without the necessity of a doctor. Uh, that will be done. What you're bringing up is, is just a matter of time. And we can accelerate that. We're, we're working on these things right now in areas such as in heart rhythm or such as for pregnancy, where we have a serious problem in the U.S. with maternal mortality. And we want to get women who, we, who are deemed at high risk to have sensors to preempt that type of morbidity or even fatality. But, you know, there's a lot of work across the board for you know, many specific conditions, ultimately, you know, for general health. Uh, but it's going to take dedicated effort, uh, which there aren't many people working on this yet. There will be. I concur with you around, again, maternal and child problems. Uh, the data I said, I've seen uh, shows that 7,000 uh, deaths occur annually unnecessarily. So now we're not looking at the high-risk patients who we've always known had a major chance of a complication or even a death. We're looking at regular, normal people, the listeners to the show right now, and they get pregnant. They think it's going to be a great event, and something happens, usually either from excess blood loss post-delivery or from uh, hypertension, so either hypo or hypertension, hypo from blood loss or hypertension uh, as a result of the pregnancy itself. What type of monitors are you developing? How do you see us using 21st century technology to lower this mortality? Well, I mean, I think some of it is related to uh, the 
<laughs> gestational diabetes, for example, where it isn't diagnosed or it's diagnosed erroneously. I mean, we still use this, a glucose tolerance test, the oral load, which is unbelievable that we still use that because it turns out uh, high glucoses after a load or eating are not uncommon in non-pregnant women. What do we call it? everybody has gestational diabetes? No, it turns out that is just a big miscue. But there are, you know, plenty of pregnant women who don't have good glucose regulation, who have high blood pressure, which we can now easily diagnose in the wild, in their real world, and that is a harbinger of trouble. Uh, either one of these, in fact, if they're real, and also, you know, of course, sensors to monitor them, to monitor the fetus. I mean, there are many ways that we can be ahead of this, uh, whereby we can define risk, you know, prior to term, um, and certainly after a lot of the adverse events are postpartum. And so it isn't just that once a person is using uh, sensors that at the moment of delivery the mother stops, but in fact it's continued for weeks thereafter. By the way, one of the questions that um, I got to early on is the equity in care that all citizens should have this availability. Well, what we're talking about here, sensors, are cheap chips. This is Moore's Law, 50-plus years in. And giving people smartphones with broadband data coverage and sensors would be far less expensive than one emergency room visit, one night in a hospital. So we have to start thinking that way. And since we know that the mortality in mothers uh, expected mothers um, and postpartum uh, is so high, especially in African ancestry. That's where, again, we people who can't afford technology, we need to give it to them so that we can get the monitoring done. That's part of the problem we have today is we haven't realized how cheap these uh, sensors and the software can be. And a data plan for years is cheaper than uh, emergency room visit or hospitalization. If you had to guess five years from now, let's just pick an artificial number, uh, how cheap could it be and how many functions could a single system, as you, as you envision it, uh, how many different functions would you see this basic system incorporating? Well, I think what we're talking about is, you know, condition by condition. So there'll be a, a system for blood pressure management, which is you noted properly, the number one chronic condition of man, 70 plus million Americans at least are affected. Who knows? Maybe far more and less than half of them being properly managed. So a condition like that is well suited for this diabetes or prevention of diabetes. And, you know, just going across the board of all the common chronic conditions, depression, uh, for example. And Eventually, though, it'll take probably more than five years, but we'll have one just for uh, all purpose, maintenance, promotion of health. But, uh, you know, we're going to see, we're starting to see right now, smart algorithms, not rules-based, you know, not just your glucose is going up or down, which is what we have today, which is a dumb algorithm. We're getting smart ones where it incorporates you know, everything that you had to eat or drink, your gut microbiome, your sleep, your physical activity, your stress level, and on and on. So we have to get multimodal data assimilated and extracted in real time and give the feedback to the person. Those systems will be developed. This, this is uh, something that's 
just waiting to happen. How soon? Well, it's happening right now in diabetes. These are being developed and tested. And they just keep expanding the number, the levels of data, you know, the layers of data. So um, you know, I think it's just a matter of how that gets refined and, you know, how many layers do you need before it's saturated for performance. What are your views about the use of video either for patients and physicians to communicate, uh, physicians to communicate with each other? Um, I, I see as a third of what we do in healthcare today could be better done less expensive, higher quality, sooner through video. What are your thoughts about that particular technology? Yeah, no, I'm very much a proponent of telemedicine. Um, you know, I think it's a welcome uh, addition to the ways that we can connect uh, between clinicians and patients. Uh, the problem we have today, though, is that it's a video chat, and that is much less than it will be as it builds within a data exchange platform. So the person with their sensor data, their lab data that they've done on their own, or you know whatever data they will have to share, and that'll be part, whether it's during or before the visit is, is being done, to share with the uh, doctor or clinician. So that's where I think this is headed, a much better, more meaningful. Uh, you might not be able to do a physical exam through the video, but you might be able to get a lot of objective uh, data and even part of the physical exam, in fact. So, you know, I think that's going to build and, and go beyond a chat because today the chat is just elemental. And I think the other thing, of course, the big trend of having doctors come to your home with these apps like Uber, uh, which is you know, big in California and, and other cities around the country now. Uh, I never would have thought that the return of the house call was uh, likely, but that seems to be taking hold as well. You pointed out earlier that the frequency of uh, medical error is rising, and the report out of Johns Hopkins talks about a lot of those being communication problems. I teach this to every graduate school of business, and when I tell my students that the most common way that doctors exchange information with each other today is the fax machine. They look at me and they say, what is a fax machine? How do you, yeah. how do you envision communication in the future just being done between physicians? Well, I mean, uh, unfortunately today, we still have most American physicians unwilling to communicate with their patients through email. Or, or other electronic means, which is remarkable. And if you ask them why don't they do that, it says because we don't get reimbursed. Well, as, as you showed uh, we, among all the Kaiser Permanente physicians, that in fact it makes things more efficient. And uh, that's what patients, that's the modern form of communication. But unfortunately, physicians have bucked that. And uh, everything's always a, we don't get reimbursed. You know, why don't I use a, uh, smartphone ultrasound to do my physical exam and preempt the need for most ultrasound studies, which is over 100 million of these studies a year. Why don't I do that? Oh, because I don't get reimbursed. Everything's, I don't get reimbursed. So we have to fix that model of reimbursement uh, if we're going to make some headway. We've got some real roadblocks there. In your opinion, what are some of the most exciting patient-centric technologies uh, that you see coming in the next five years or so? Well, there's, there's so many. Uh, one that I've, uh, I'm enamored by is the potential to have an individualized diet. There's 
now clear-cut evidence of a large number of people have glucose spikes after they eat. Um, one of them I, I learned by having a continuous glucose sensor and for a couple of weeks, uh, I'm not a diabetic. And there's been a lot written about this, particularly from the group in Israel, the Wiseman Institute, Aaron Siegel and Aaron Elanov. And so uh, more recently at Stanford, Michael Snyder published about this in Plus Bio. But I think what we're learning is that each person has a unique response to their diet. Um, and we can find that data, what's driving it. It's often partly influenced by their gut microbiome which today we don't know how to modulate, but that probably will change in the years ahead. But the point being here is that we can be much smarter about what we eat um, and avoid glucose spikes, uh, re reduce the transition potentially from healthy to diabetic. So many other things that we know food is a really important part of our medical health future, but we haven't really done proper nutritional research or science to advance that field. I think that is an area that ultimately um, has a lot of room for improvement and to get insights uh, for each person as to what would be their optimal foods to be taking, adjusting, and things that they might consider avoiding or reducing. What are some of the ways that artificial intelligence should or will be used in healthcare that you haven't already discussed? Well, I mean, I think we talk about uh, for clinicians, um, but also for consumers, for patients, uh, for healthy individuals. I've already talked about the coaching capability. That's going to be quite important. And, you know, I think that's something that we should really be working on because we've already seen, for example, how people with serious migraines, that uh, a deep learning algorithms for them can help them reduce or even eliminate uh, migraine headaches. And, that's very promising because that's a major form of disability. So using data, apps, and algorithms instead of medication and other expensive treatments could prove to be quite effective and useful, but we haven't taken it nearly as seriously enough as we could. Now, perhaps one of the best examples is what happened in Louisville when all the people in Louisville were, who had asthma were given connected inhalers, which would tell each other where are the hot spots where uh, people are wheezing and taking, using inhalers and having asthma attacks. A 50% reduction over the course of a year in asthma attacks and over 70% reduction in the need for inhalers in the citywide program. It's just striking. So that's the kind of thing that we need to get out there across many medical conditions, not just uh, for asthma. Well, Dr. Topol, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, can you please provide a closing statement with takeaways for both industry leaders as well as the average healthcare consumer? Um, and you may also ask them to follow you on your various social media channels. Well, thanks. I've enjoyed the discussion with you and the questions you've peppered me with. Uh, I'm at Twitter, uh, Eric Topol. My closing summary would be, even though uh, it's hard to change medicine, especially in the United States, uh, I'm still uh, very optimistic. I, I see more uh, ways in which we can radically improve healthcare in this country, both with, with respect to better outcomes and at lesser cost with the tools that are before us, uh, starting with healthcare for all citizens. That's a must. 
Uh, we can't be the negative outlier for the rest of the world of the all developed countries. And then building on the ways that I've outlined that can get us to a much higher plane, health, which is the most precious thing in our lives, uh, we can really improve upon in the years ahead. Eric, thanks so much for being on our show today. It was a lot of fun. You're clearly the nation's leading thought expert around technology and as much that we all can learn from you. I can't promise that your approach and recommendations will be the ones our nation embraces. For any of our listeners who thought that solutions didn't exist before today, you've been proven wrong. Thank you. Next month, our guest will be Dr. Donald Berwick. He is the former president and CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and led the 100,000 Lives campaign. He is the former administrator for CMS and has served on the faculty for Harvard Medical School and Harvard School of Public Health. He has written numerous articles along with the books Curing Healthcare and Escape Fire, Designs for the Future of Healthcare. Dr. Berwick is considered to be a revolutionary in American healthcare. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on iTunes or other podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. It stands for healthcare at Fixing HC Podcast. You can find our personal LinkedIn and Twitter accounts on the website. Additional information on other healthcare topics, you can check out my website, drrobertperlmd.com. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. I will tell your friends and colleagues about it. Together, we can make American healthcare the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Corr. Have a great day. Thank you.